everybody, and welcome to the ESPN 7 Innings Podcast. I am Michelle Smith, yet again, pinch hitting for Beth Moens as she's covering the uh, basketball tournament. I'm joined with Amanda Scarborough, Jen Schroeder, Jenny Dalton-Hill, and Kayla Bro. We've got a great lineup card uh, worked out today. We're going to talk about uh, the brooms are out. Um, maybe some teams that are off the radar. Of course, we're going to Remember Joan Joyce, uh, we're going to talk about the SEC madness that's been going on as of late, must-see TV, and of course, we're going to shag some stats. So right off the top, why don't we go ahead and um, talk, Amanda, a little bit about the brooms out. There were a lot of sweeps as of late. What have you been seeing? What's been going on in this crazy softball season? Yeah, you know, Michelle, I was taking a look at a lot of the sweeps and just trying to find a common denominator, and (laughs) it really is hard to find one. I'm almost thinking that it's not even a broom, but more like a vacuum with what happened this past weekend, like sucking different teams in. Um, but what one of the things that stood out to me is looking at the teams who got swept, the pitchers who got beat, like Gabby Plain at Washington, Georgina Corrick at USF, Alex Duraco and Bobian all took losses this past weekend for Michigan. And we're talking about all American pitchers getting beat and getting swept this weekend. So that was definitely something that stuck out to me because it wasn't necessarily the all Americans winning in those series. It was somebody like a Mac Morgan at ASU. Remember they swept Arizona and also Marissa Schold, Anna Borgen and Savannah Diedrich for Ole Miss. Ole Miss swept Missouri. So I was looking to the circle of course, and just seeing these all Americans go down. Um, And the one other thing that I wanted to point out before we get all of your guys' take on this as well, is just the overall lack of offense for the teams that got swept. Arizona against ASU only scored two runs. They were shut out twice. Missouri only scored five runs against Ole Miss and USF only scored four runs in those three games against UCF. So a lot of interesting things going on. And I feel like there aren't a lot of sweeps these days, but this weekend, it seemed to be a common denominator. Amanda, you're such a pitcher talking about those, you know, you said, I look to the circle, obviously, like that's how anyone would look. But when I look at these scores, I look at the hitters and I look at the offense. So when I see Arizona losing to ASU three times, I don't necessarily look at the two runs that Arizona scored. I look at the 28 that Arizona State put up. I look at these teams like an Arizona State going into Tucson and run ruling Arizona for the first time in history. So to me, what's sticking out more so than the pitching performances are the hitters across the board. Jenny, back me up on this. No, 100%. You've got to make adjustments from at bat to at bat. And that's what Arizona just did not do. When you look at that, those sweeps by Arizona, you look at two weekends, first UCLA and then ASU. And for me, I think this is a young squad headed up by a brand new coach, brand new head coach, but also a team that graduated six starters and has been plagued by injuries of the starters that then were able to come back. So they've got Sophia Carroll, who came in for Jess Harper at shortstop. She's out with injury for the year. Janelle Mionio, their second baseman, out for the year, we think. And then Hannah Bowen, the ace, has been in and out of the lineup with injuries. And so it comes down to the circle. So I'll give Amanda a little bit of a nod because It does come down to pitching with Arizona. They haven't been able to get Devin Nets to really step up and become that ace that is unbeatable. But then also the bats. Everybody knows Arizona can hit, but where did the bats go? That's a huge question for me. And they have to make adjustments from at bat to at bat. And we're just not seeing it. Kayla? Yeah, uh, I'm going to focus on the hitters. And a lot of times when I see a team get swept, my natural um, thought process is to go look at the players on the losing team that are the best players on the squad. What did they do in that weekend? Because, you know, pressure, pressure is a privilege and you earn the right to be a factor in a series when you are as good as you are. So I'm looking at Mizzou who got swept by Ole Miss this weekend. And somebody that sticks out to me in their lineup is Brooke Wilmish. She's been a leadoff hitter for them. She's just a spark for their offense. They're 0-5 in conference play. And in those games, she's hitting 133, only two hits in five games. And that's why a Mizzou offense just can't hang and why they get swept by Tennessee and Ole Miss in back-to-back weekends. The best players on your team have to show up. And if they don't, then, you know, you got a good chance of getting beat. 
Well, ladies, I love the fact that we're talking about the brooms being out. I specifically would like to say that I'm glad this is just a podcast this week because I look like I actually rode in on a broom this morning. I got up at four o'clock in the morning in Arkansas. Um, Amanda, some of us got an extra 30 minutes of sleep. I'll let you uh, respond to that in a second. Um, but yes, I do look like I rode the broom in instead of talking about the uh, the sweeps uh, this weekend. So Amanda, do you want to um, talk a little bit about your morning? Michelle, you weren't supposed to tell anybody. I almost missed my flight this morning because, okay, so it all started because I left my phone charger at the field last night um, whenever we were at Arkansas. And so then I wanted to turn off my phone so I could save it for when I got to the airport. So I turned on my iPad, set the alarm, and I set it for 4.45 p.m. instead of a.m. And so I woke up at 5.15 a.m. in a complete panic. I was like, like, why did my alarm go off? Oh, it's set for PM. Okay. That's my bad. And I ran out and somehow got out of there in seven minutes. So I did get an extra 30 minutes of sleep and I woke up at 5.15 for a 6.23 AM flight and somehow still made it. So I was panicking that I wouldn't be here with you guys. Thanks, Michelle. Um, appreciate the call out kind of. Yep. A little. You know what? I, I thought we had to talk about that. And I think that's a great segue into uh, spot number two off the radar, because that would have been Amanda driving this morning from Fayetteville to the airport. She would have been off the radar. Um, we know she's a big uh, uh, speed racer uh, Texan. She passes me all the time when we're on the road. But so off the radar, ladies, let's talk a little bit about some teams that Maybe we haven't been following. We're not, weren't expecting to have the results that they did. I know there's a lot of teams that are climbing up through the ranks, had some big weekends in uh, Nebraska, Boise State, Virginia. Uh, JDH, why don't you jump in here and take the lead on some teams that are off the radar? And I think when it comes to those teams that are off the radar, I look to those teams that are out of the power five, knowing that they don't get as much exposure They don't have a lot of TV time, and so it's harder to scout those teams. And I think that's what makes them a little bit easier to sneak up on people when they come in and play you. So I am going to start with Troy. They're in the Sunbelt Conference. They've got wins over Ole Miss, Ohio State, and LSU this year. Kelly Horn is hitting 397 for them with eight home runs. But their pitching staff, led by Jenna Johnson, or Leanna Johnson, is at a 1.63 ERA. And Michelle, I know you always love talking about whip. She's at a 0.94. And so she's appeared in 23 of their 29 games. So expect to see Leanna Johnson if you're facing Troy. Another one I need to talk about is BYU. They're moving to the Big 12 next season. They're kind of streaky though. I can't put all my coins in that basket because they just don't continually show up week after week against those quality opponents but they just swept Iowa State in a three-game series. That will be a Big 12 opponent in a couple years, but they also beat Cal, who just swept Washington. So that's a big win for them. Five players hitting over 350. Violet Zavodnik, such a great bat. Eight home runs, tons of speed, but I'm going to say my favorite hitter over 350 at BYU is Brooke Hill Barrington for obvious reasons. But for them, it's going to come down to defense and pitching. It does leave them vulnerable, but that is a team that can absolutely mash. And then one other team I want to bring up is Miami of Ohio. They lost games early on to low RPI teams, but are on an eight-game win streak that includes wins over Kentucky and Michigan. They've challenged this. The, they've challenged themselves this season, going against Alabama twice, Texas twice. Virginia Tech, and South Carolina. And right now they're perfect in Mac play. So I'm looking for them to lead the league and uh, head into postseason with a pretty strong resume. Kayla, who else is on your radar? Yeah, uh, I have my eyes set on the Mountain West Conference right now. Um, there's two teams that stick out to me, and they're both 6-0 and in conference play. The first is Boise State. Um, Boise State's on a 10-game winning streak. Uh, they've had really good wins over Stanford, Houston. They just swept Fresno State last weekend. Uh, they're led by Kelsey Hall, who has eight home runs. She's hitting 438 on the season, so she's just a hitter that can do it all. And uh, San Diego State, also 6-0 and in conference play. They have a really deep pitching staff led by Maggie Ballant, and uh, I think that's going to be the deciding series who's going to win that conference. And I think both teams, the way that they're playing right now are going to have a, a great opportunity to go challenge somebody in a regional down the road, if they continue this success. So that's what I always look at when I look at teams like off the radar, like, 
who could really upset somebody in a regional in a weekend? That shows me uh, a good team right there and somebody that maybe we don't focus on that we should in, in postseason play. And when I look at off the radar, I look at it a little differently than you two. I think, okay, who's in that top 25 that could be in a power five conference that just isn't getting the love that we will give the, the UCLA's and the Alabama's and the Florida's of the world. Um, so for me, three teams I would love to highlight are Ohio State, ASU, and Nebraska. So these are big name colleges, right? Ohio State, the Ohio State. Side note, I once watched a special about the band member who gets the, to dot the I at the football games for Ohio State, and I've kind of always wanted to do that, so I'm just admitting that here to you guys. But uh, Ohio State is led by a six-year Lexi Hanley. So this is her third school. She started at Akron, went to Auburn, and pretty much was just their BP pitcher, and she's playing with something extra this year. She'll be tested against Kentucky this week. Honestly, by the time this podcast comes out, we'll know the we'll, we'll know how that turns out. Uh, Jenny, I think you have that game, right? Uh, but Jordan Clark, their assistant coach, she said that they are just untraditional. Their team motto is, it doesn't matter who, just do it. And when you watch them play, you really see that. They're just unfazed, unscared. They have uh, freshmen playing up the middle, you know, freshman playing up the middle and then a sixth year in the circle. So just a well-balanced team. And I just feel like you can never count them out. ASU, Trisha Ford, I think, is one of the best and most underrated pitching coaches in Division I softball. Uh, Amanda, you mentioned two names, Mac Morgan, Marissa Schultz. Marissa Schultz, a transfer from Arizona who went into Tucson and threw a five-inning perfect game against her former team. She played for the Wildcats last year. So I love to see it. I know Arizona fans are going to hate that I admit that. In fact, when I tweeted it, Alyssa Palomino Cardoza texted me like, I can't believe you said that, but I love to see it. They're on a 14 game win streak. They're six and zero in the Pac-12 conference. Six and zero, guys. That's huge. Um, Acuna's hitting 494, nine home runs. And in those six wins in the Pac-12, they've scored 51 runs in Pac-12 conference. That's wild. And then lastly, I just want to give a little love to Nebraska. They had their first ever wins in Ann Arbor. They took two from Michigan last weekend. They're led by Millie Andrews. And I'd like to note that they don't play Northwestern this year in the Big Ten. So I think that makes it a little interesting for Big Ten play, Amanda. Well, I think it's interesting, Jen, how we all look at off the radar differently. Jenny talked about like the mid-major teams and Kayla, you did as well. And then Jen, you looked more to the top 25 teams that weren't getting enough love. I looked outside of mid-majors and I looked outside of top 25 to Cal and Oregon State. So seems like the Pac-12 is a very similar thread that's woven throughout, I think, this conversation in terms of off the radar teams, because I think that a team like Cal and Oregon State has surprised us a little bit. And it's interesting because they both have some pretty big wins when you look at their resume. Cal was able to beat Washington and also uh, able to beat Oregon as well. But I think that Cal is a team that needs to be taken very seriously with the way that they swing the bat and Oregon State alike. So when you look at Cal and Oregon State's offensive numbers, they're very similar in terms of team batting average, home runs, and RBI. So that stood out to me that they're a solid offensive team. The one thing to me that sets both of them apart is the fact that Mariah Mazin is back in the circle for Oregon State as of this past weekend. They took two of three from Stanford, a very, very formal team and the fact that she's back in the circle to me gives them that slight edge to kind of put them back on the radar and I think that we need to start taking them seriously and the Pac-12 makes it very interesting with those two teams uh, coming on strong lately. Great job ladies that's a off the radar segment and uh, the number two hole Um, and I I don't know I feel like right now maybe our um, naming of the podcast top uh, and we can vote on this because we will, but we're going to, you know, the five of us will, will definitely vote on this. I don't know, maybe dot the I um, or arrived on a broom. I think that those are the two leaders for the name of the podcast at this point. All right. Well, time to get a little serious and uh, move on to the three hole. And we're going to talk a little bit about Joan Joyce and remembering Joan. Um, I'm going to uh, lead off with this segment and try not to get um, teary eyed or too emotional because um I know if I if I do that, uh, Joan Joyce would would probably make me run foul poles. And uh, you know, she was a that type of uh, coach that was um, loved the game, um, was gritty, uh, just an incredible person. Um, Joan Joyce needs to be remembered for the icon that um, 
that she is, she was. Um, and it's just so fitting that here it is in March when she passes. It's Women's History Month. We're going to be celebrating the 40th Women's College World Series this year and the 50th anniversary of Title IX. And there's no better athlete to remind us of um, what women um, back in her generation went through just to play sports and then the incredible athlete that she was. Um, we know that her abilities on the softball field were um, will, will never be matched. Um, but what a lot of people don't know is that she spent 19 years on the LPGA. She started playing golf as an adult. It's not like she grew up playing golf. That's how good of an athlete she was. 19 years on the LPGA. She was a three-time All-American in basketball for the AAU. How about this? She struck out Hank Aaron and Ted Williams. And for our younger listeners that might not know who Hank Aaron is, okay, he broke Babe Ruth's home run record. So Babe Ruth held the home run record of 714 home runs. He ended his career with 755. Ted Williams, known as probably the best hitter of all time, a career batting average of 344. And yet to this day, the last player to hit over 400 in the majors. He ended his uh, 1941 season at 406. And Jen, Joan Joyce struck out both these men. Um, I want to tell a real quick story about how Joan Joyce impacted my life, not just as a friend, um, but, but as a coach. And, uh, you know, I grew up in a time when I watched Nolan Ryan and a, lot, a bunch of MLB players because softball, frankly, wasn't on TV. And I always had heard of the legend of Joan Joyce. And the very first time I met her, I ran and grabbed a ball and I had her sign it for me. And I, I felt like, you know, it's like complete. I was like, here's a woman who's done so much in our sport. I never, unfortunately, got to see her play, but I just heard everybody talk so highly about her. And one time um, when I was out in Denver at a, a, a tournament, she was out there recruiting for FAU and uh, Michelle Gramacki was catching me and I had already been after the the 96 Olympics. So we already won a gold medal. Most, most people, most opposing countries knew me as a rise ball curveball pitcher. And so going into Sydney, I knew I was going to need a different look. And so I was working, trying to learn a drop ball, trying to work on something. And I remember Joan walking past me and she asked Mac and I like, what are you working on? And I said, well, a drop. I said, I, you know, it's very difficult for pitchers to either throw a rise ball and a drop ball, you know, because your, your body angle is so different. She looked at me and she goes, she grabs the ball and she goes, no, it's not hold it like this. She, she had me hold it across the seams. She said, now just rip it up like this, throw it as hard as you can, lean a little forward and rip it up like this. So all of a sudden I start throwing this drop ball that she basically taught me in 30 seconds. And it just started falling off the table. I went into Sydney with a drop ball that Japan and China and nobody else knew about it. I kind of kept it in my back pocket and ended up, um, ended up winning a gold medal. I probably threw the best I've ever thrown in the Olympics. Um, and I think to this day, I still hold the, uh, ERA record, like 29 and something innings pitched and did not give up an earned run. And when I think about Joan and I think about um, the Olympics, it's her drop ball. And uh, so um, Joan uh, will be sorely missed on and off the field. Um, but to me, I, I look at that uh, Sydney Olympic gold medal and I think about the drop ball that, that Joan Joyce taught me. And I hope that uh, her legacy continues to live on through um, our sport and through all the younger generations. So if you don't know Joan Joyce, then you need to Google her and you need to learn her because she truly is the history of our game. Does anyone else have anything they want to share? Well, Michelle, I would just, you, you, we talked about that story on the way to the game the other day in the car. And I thought that such a more like in the moment now of how that, that story that you told about her working with you in a drop ball is now affecting current generations of softball players when you work with them and you teach them the same thing. And so she will continue to live on because those players that you taught will learn it. Those players that they teach later will learn it. And Joan Joyce will just be in the softball world forever. So I, I love that story and the ripple effect that it, that it causes. So I just wanted to add that on your story. Amanda, that's exactly what I was thinking about. And honestly, Michelle, I'd only met Joan a couple of times and my eyes are filling with tears listening to you talk about her because now as a mother of a daughter, you think who are going to be the athletes that impact her and change her. And you can only hope that there's somebody who has that effect on her like Joan had on you and so many of us. Because without Joan Joyce, we, all of us on this podcast would not have the opportunities that we have had 
in softball if it weren't for the strides that she made in our sport. And so it really does make me emotional to think about the impact she had on so many and then to think who are going to be the people who impact my daughter in that way, like she impacted you. I was able to call some of their postseason games in years past at Florida, and she was just such a spitfire. Like she was gritty in your interviews with her, not just in between the white lines. And so just seeing that demeanor that she carried through life always, it felt like there was a chip on her shoulder. And I can understand why she had to fight through so many barriers and has just become a pioneer for equality and representation of women in sports. She came around before Title IX, had to fight so many battles just to be able to play and then to see all of the different arenas that she was able to make an impact on, golf, basketball, volleyball, and our sport of softball. Just an absolute pleasure to have met her. But yeah, she was intimidating even in interviews when I wasn't even having to pick up a glove and play. Uh, I thought the same exact thing, Jenny. The first time I, we, I remember playing against her and she just in the third base coaching block, like I was like scared around her. Like she was just alluded, just confidence and that stubbornness and grittiness that, you know, you obviously had to have in her life. And, uh, you know, we were calling the game and, you know, we um, talked about her on the air and, you know, it really brought, you know, emotion to me because I was sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, like I'm calling a softball game on TV. These women, these young women are playing on the stage, like in front of a crowded packed house, like on a Sunday afternoon. And we're all getting to like celebrate and play the sport we love. And like, immediately I just felt so much gratitude to not only Joan, but like every single woman that helped pave the way to get to where we are today, because, you know, I think sometimes we take for granted where we are right now. And it was such a great callback and a reminder to say, no, you know, we've worked really hard. So many women have worked so hard to get us where we are. And I'm just so beyond grateful for Joan and what she was able to do for all of us and for all the future softball players out there. Yeah, well said, everybody. Um, I would be uh, remiss if I didn't add that um, she just picked up her 1000th victory um, as a head coach. Um FAU family, obviously mourning her loss like the rest of the softball family and also associate head coach Shan Walker, who was a great supporter of Joan um, just many, many years working with her. Um, We're thinking about Shan and uh, the entire FAU team as we mourn the loss of Joan Joyce. Let's go ahead and roll now into the number four spot and talk a little bit about how about the Women College World Series nostalgia right what it feels like to have been there to have played there the memories that are made and we're going to talk with uh, two iconic coaches now in the game Taryn Mowat from the 2007 Women's College World Series and Allison Habits from the 1993 Women's College World Series. I can remember almost every pitch vividly of the World Series. Um, I could probably tell you what pitch I threw in what situation Um, I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember what I ate, what I did the day before, um, what I did even before going to the field that day. So in me, the memories still live in me and the feelings are still so vivid to me because I can kind of place myself in that moment. Um, And I hope I never forget that moment because it was so special. I saw the changeup that was called, and in my head I was like, okay, this is the pitch that everybody's, like, I've thrown this a million times this week. Everybody thinks that this is what the game's going to end on. Um, and she put it in play, and I saw uh, I saw it go to third base, and I, Janae had been rock solid at third base, and I was just watching, like, okay, fielded it cleanly, throw across the diamond, here we go. And that inning in itself, you can kind of see everybody on the field, the energy that they were radiating, like, okay, the celebration is coming, the celebration is coming. And I'm like, just make some good pitches, get some outs here. But um, the second the ground ball went to Janae and she fielded it cleanly, I saw her go to throw it. And I'm like, all right, it's time to dog pile. (laughs) To me, it's really special, um, especially with the timing of having my son. I mean, we're in the middle of practice, getting ready for the season, and I'm just so thankful that 
the coaches that I'm with, um, having Kay as a boss, um, and the, the bullpen, everybody on our team understands, and they're so invested in my momhood here, um, and they, they love it. They loved him before he was even born, and so I, I'm so lucky that they are invested in that, and that they've allowed me to be a working mom. Not everybody gets that opportunity, and I feel I feel like he's being born into a program that is very special, um, that is going to teach him a lot of values, and he's going to have a lot of great role models. Um, but for me, I'm just I'm so thankful that I get to be a mom and I get to work at the same time. And like I said, not everybody gets that opportunity. So Kate being a mom as well obviously helps, and she has just been unbelievable with it. I remember being in right field, waiting for the game before us, and we had a night game, so the lights were on. And I remember walking on the grass in right field, and the raging Cajun fans just erupted in the stadium. I mean, it sounded like, you know, we had never had, we had a good following, but to have that many fans come to Oklahoma City, I will never forget. It was like the whole crowd was ours, because, and they probably were, because Raging Cajun fans want to feed everybody, so they probably fed everybody. So everybody was cheering for us. Um, but to walk on the field and, under the lights and just to play catch in the outfield, I had the goosebumps the entire time to give the people in Lafayette and, and that community something to rally around, a team to rally around. And, and they did, man. They rallied around us. When we got back, they had a big parade for us. And it was just, just a great experience all the way around. It was great for the community, great for the program. And... Um, and I was just really happy for, again, Coach Gerard and Murphy because they had invested so much time and energy into building the program. When we played Arizona, I was fangirling because obviously their program, you know, them and UCLA were just like, wow, we're, we're actually on the same field with them. Um, seeing Mike and Andrea and just being able to play them. And then we beat them, I think it was like two to one because back then, you know, we didn't have composite bats. So it was like ping, ping, you know, and... The celebra- I mean, you could have sworn we won the World Series because we dogpiled after. I mean, we were just, you know, celebrating everything because we were just happy to be there and everything else was extra. But we competed, and it was, it was so much fun to, to beat them. But uh, we ended up having to play UCLA on the Monday, which didn't turn out so well for us. Tell us about facing Lisa Fernandez. Jen, I'm telling you, she, she could throw it hard. You know, so I remember getting up to bat and thinking, okay, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make, I'm gonna make contact. So, I don't know what pitch it was, but I saw it. I was like, okay, I got that. Well, the next pitch, she threw a changeup, and I'm telling you, for three feet, it disappeared. It went into the twilight zone. I never saw it. I'm like, what pitch is that? Because you know, I grew up playing baseball, so I wasn't really used to a lot of softball. But her pitches, they did, they, they disappeared halfway. Um, I just remembered I was so happy that I made contact, and that was it. Lisa was just incredible. I just was like, wow, that's Lisa Fernandez. No wonder, you know, it's Lisa Fernandez, and she was that good. When we went in 93, there, were no, there was no seats in the outfield. It was just behind home plate, really. Um, but now just the seating in the outfield, you know, the high risers and just the capacity crowds and, and how they get full, you know. So what I thought was a loud roar in right field in 93 is now and doesn't compare. Okay, and great information from both Tara and, and Allison. Um, I'm going to say when I played in the Women's College World Series, I think it was still black and white film. Um, so it was uh, back in the day. I think we were still playing on slow pitch fields, a little bit different type of experience than than maybe some of y'all. So um, I'd love to hear a, a minute or two from from maybe some, some of the best uh, feelings um, some of the best memories that y'all had when you were playing in the WCWS? I was so fortunate to be able to play in the Women's College World Series all four of my years as a player and then as a volunteer or as an undergrad assistant at Arizona after that. But to be able to see where we were and where we are now, we have come so far. And I've mentioned it before on the podcast, but I've been so teary-eyed in year this year 
thinking about how much the game has grown and looking at the stadium that they're able to play in now and the packed house, it was amazing this past year in Oklahoma City. But I do need to bring up a memory. I played against Allison Habits in that 1993 World Series. Um, but it was the next year in 94 that I want to bring up. We had a Batgirl. Her name was Donnie Sullivan. And we were able to, she went, you know, in the dugout with us. So we had to keep it clean and make sure that we were tutoring her in the right way. But when it comes to at the end of the series, when you're out, we won the World Series that year. And I signed my visor and gave it to her and signed my cleats and gave it to her. And she came back to me this past year in Oklahoma City. And it's true, ladies. She brought me my foam visor that I signed back in 1994 and it's still wobbly and it still has the same, like, it's it's never going to have its shape. Let's be honest, right? But honestly, how cool to be able to have my foam visor back from 1994 when I won the Women's College World Series. So a little tip of the cap to Donnie Sullivan Scott, who brought it back to me and introduced me to her five-year-old daughter who now plays softball. Okay. I just want to interject real quick. It, this is again, a podcast this week. We will be moving to a TV show. This uh, seven innings podcast will become a TV show in early April. And I'm very, very sad besides my big hair that looks like I wrote it on a broom that you could have seen the visor that JDH just put on. That is that is really good classic television right there. Michelle, do you have one of those? Like, can a floppy visor actually hold back your mane? Uh, I have about a hundred of them and I have to be reinforced. I had to sew two together. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jenny actually looks great with the visor on right now and her hair looks fabulous. So um, props to the visor that's still working in the year 2022. Um my greatest memory, of course, is, is getting to play on that field for the first time and the sights, the sounds. But I think that whenever I think of the World Series, I think of 2005 in Washington, no offense, Jen, Michigan won it for the first time. Like that was my first, and it's not because Michigan won it. I didn't care who won it. I sat there with a few teammates and we watched every pitch after we lost in Super Regionals to Alabama. And it was in that moment of watching Michigan win it. I just didn't know before then that like we were playing in super regionals, like to get to that, to get to have every game on TV. Like I was just naive as a freshman, like a little bit behind in what we were actually playing for. And I think it actually helped me my freshman year, but that's a side story. Like seeing Michigan win it and just seeing the teams compete at that level and just understanding how big of a stage it was that we were having a chance to play on in college softball. Like that's what I always remember is really in 2005. My favorite memory is in 2005 as well, uh, because it's, it's not what happened on the field either. Like we, I can reflect, like we beat Kat Osterman, Monica Abbott throughout my career there, but it's not those memories. It has nothing to do with playing. It's going for the three P and being in the crazy van with Sue Enquist as our van driver. So when she was VD, she was not coach. She was VD and whatever was said in the van stayed in the van. It was committing to getting a tattoo if we three-peated. Guys, I have no tattoos. I am not a tattoo girl. And somehow in the van, I committed that if we were to win that year, I would have inked my body, right? It's committing to that type of stuff. It's being in the van and circling in the back for everyone who's played there. You know, there's the circle in the back, circling three times for the three-peat. And then being there as a fan in 2010 and coach still renting a van for all of us alumni and sneaking in the back and circling three times, even though we weren't players and we weren't supposed to be back there, we just, you know, fake it till you make it and circled three times. And yes, we lost that year. Michigan won their first championship. I'll say we beat them game one. We would have won if it were, you know, 2004 when it was only a one game championship, but it moved to a three game championship and we lost Amanda. Thanks for reminding me, but it's those memories that happen off the field with your teammates that I will cherish for the rest of my life and Van Driver Sue. Kayla. And Jen, thank goodness it did go to that three game series because uh, I would have been on the losing end uh, if it was a uh, one game championship series, like you mentioned before. So I'm really happy that it's, it was a three game. Um, I think for me, looking back at the women's college world series, a couple things stand out. Like, I don't know about you, but as a competitor, 
I loved the national anthem and standing on the field and that kind of calm before the storm where you just are standing shoulder to shoulder next to your teammates. You're taking your deep breaths and you just see like a silent crowd. And it's like right before first pitch and you just have goosebumps, you have butterflies, you're just ready to go to compete on that stage. Like I just, I just so vividly remember that specific moment, how special I felt that I was standing on that field at that moment in time. Um, a couple other things like that stand out to me in terms of memories, like Jen, just to kind of like piggyback off of you, like some of the things like off of the field before the games, like I remember like one of my teammates got pooped on by a bird before the game, like just like little things like that, that made it fun that like kind of alleviated some of the, um, the pressure or like the, the bigness of the stage. Um, so like little things like that and just turning into like a big joke and, um, I think for us too, like the ours was like the dance in the rain, the, you know, rain delay. So what was really special about our moment was that because of the big rain delay um, in game three, there really wasn't that many people in the stands anymore because the game was like, I think pushed like almost midnight. Um, so really it was like Oklahoma's friends and family and Alabama's friends and family. So you went from this like really big stage of like having a full house to being like, okay, this is your crew versus my crew. And like, I want to be with my crew. And I remember when it started raining and our team kind of came out of the dugout and we were in this like little huddle talking to each other. And I just so vividly remember thinking to myself, win or lose this ball game, this is exactly where I want to be standing right now. Like there's no better people, no better experience than being in this huddle with these people right now. And I think at that time we were down like a couple runs. So um, that moment is like one of the top five moments of my life. I just remember being like, oh, this is where I am supposed to be on this earth right now. All right. Good stuff. Good memories from the Women's College World Series. I always love hearing um, the on and off the field uh, um, events that went on. Uh, it is definitely a bucket list event. You've got to get to it. If you've never been to Oklahoma City, without a doubt, you have to be there, especially now with that upper deck on Hall of Fame Stadium. It really is a, a showcase uh, and a celebration of all of our all of the, the, the altitude, I guess you could say, of where our sport has ascended to. So let's go ahead and move on to number five in the lineup hole. It is the SEC Madness. Ladies, what the heck is going on? If you look at the, if you look at the standings, no, granted, okay, maybe it's not that uncommon to see Alabama at the top at six and three, but how about Auburn? They were picked, right, to be in the lower fourth um, by the coaches poll. And the coaches, right, you think they know their team, their opponents, where, where everybody's going to be lining up. Auburn is coming in at six and three as well. Um, a lot of mystery this year, Caleb Bro. What are you seeing from the SEC? And who do you think is going to win? I mean, where to even begin? I like have like scatterbrain notes on my piece of paper here because there's so many things going on in the SEC. Like there's so many big surprises. Like you mentioned, Auburn's at the top right now with Alabama, a Mississippi State four and two at the upper half of the SEC. And then you have like Missouri, who was like, a, in my opinion, at the beginning of the year, had an outside shot of making the Women's College World Series is now 0 and 5 in conference play, like huge question mark next to them. I mean, you go and look at like, specific matchups like this Arkansas LSU series was a perfect example of like the wild and crazy things that can go on in a game and we saw high runs no pitching defensive errors like that's kind of like what it seems like every single weekend in the SEC is like so uh you know another question mark that I look at is like Florida right now five and four and I had to go back I was really curious like because Florida and Alabama have won so many SEC championships in the last few years and I was like how many losses has Florida like averaged in the last few years that they've won and it's been like three losses on the year four losses on the year, five losses in conference play. Like that's it. And that's what you have to have to win. And now they have five losses and we're in week three. So like everything's crazy. No weekend. I don't think you can predict anything. It's just absolutely wild. Um, down the stretch though, if you want me to make a guess, and I say guess, not a prediction, an absolute guess um, on who could win the SEC. I think my sights are starting to get set on Tennessee. And the reason is, is because Aaron Edmondson, while Ashley Rogers has been out for the last three weeks, has shouldered the load and done a really, really nice job with Tennessee. Uh, they beat Missouri. They swept Missouri. They won two of three against Florida. They only won one game against Arkansas in their series, but 
Ashley Rogers is back and she looked darn good in the circle against Florida. She was on a pitch count. She went three innings, basically three up, three down every single inning, just dominated them. So if they can have Ashley Rogers back and Aaron Edmondson, I think they have the schedule and the pitching staff to try and make a run and be the new team at the top of the SEC this year. All right. That was my like large, you know, recap of the SEC. Did I miss anything? Anyone? Michelle, we, we showed this stat this past weekend, you guys, of um, looking at SEC-only games all of the 2021 season versus up to this point in 2022. And the ERA last year was like 3.30. And this year to this point, it's like 4.40. And the home runs are up. Offense is up. So I, I felt like that in itself kind of reflects like the madness that is the SEC this year because when games are so offensive like that then there's more balls put in play more potential errors more thinking and strategy and positioning like when there's fewer strikeouts you literally never know what's going to happen in a game and I felt like that was just like the LSU Arkansas series this past weekend was that they were high scoring games and it just kind of came down to who's going to make the least defensive mistakes like in the circle like mistakes over the plate and then defensive errors so I don't know it was I thought that those numbers were really telling about like a wild, wild west SEC this year. Outside of Alabama, I think Tennessee is my front runner, seeing that Ashley Rogers is hopefully trying to be healthy and get back into the into the circle consistently. But they also bring a ton of power. The transfer coming in from Oklahoma, Zeta Pooney with the big bat. She hits monster home runs and They played Oklahoma and UCLA into extra innings. Yes, they lost, but they gave both of those teams a run for their money. And so for me, I love seeing Tennessee challenge themselves early and also go on that streak that they've had in SEC play. I knew you guys would have a lot of good things to say and a lot of information. So I just wrote two things down that I felt like were a little bit more out of the box. For years past, we've seen pretty much all 13 teams make postseason. So my question, I have two. How many teams in the SEC won't make the postseason? I think we'll see more than we have in years past. And my bold prediction is that it's not really bold because I think everyone will agree. This will be the most unpredictable SEC tournament that we have seen in recent years. And I cannot wait for it because it's going to make for some really good TV. I have to make the argument, Jen, against what you're saying. I think all of the teams are going to make it. I think all 13 are going to make it because – you look at like South Carolina who didn't make it last year. They're having a better season. They did better in non-conference than they did in the previous year. So I actually disagree. Mississippi state with the way they're playing, like Mizzou's got a hard RBI, even though they've been struggling. Like who are you not going to send to the tournament at this point? I think all 13 go. Ooh, Amanda knows who I'm going to say, and it's going to be. Whoop. Yeah, no, I, I mean, looking at these records, Kayla, I agree, like their RPI is actually high and they are good teams, but you have to stay above 500. So that's like looking at their overall record is the one thing. I mean, we're down at the bottom right now. AM is 19 and 12. South Carolina is 18 and 13. And Missouri is 19 and 12. That gives very little wiggle room to be able to get swept and lose consecutive series. So that that's really what I'm keeping my eye on. Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic point. The 500 rule. You're right. That that is very true. And yeah, your Aggies, I think, are better than their record shows. But you know, you got to still win ball games. You're right. And I just want to back that up because they are at the bottom of the SEC, but, and they have seven losses in SEC play, you guys. And, you know, I followed them close. There have been four games where they had the lead late in the game and ended up losing just by one run. So if you switch that, if four of those losses ended up being wins for them, I mean, it's a totally different looking season, but it's just all hypothetical. They ended up losing. I totally get it. But that is worth pointing out that they're, they're in pretty much every game. And in years past, we've seen SEC coaches schedule differently in the preseason before conference play, knowing that getting to 500 in SEC play was going to be really difficult. So we've seen challenging schedules in pre-conference scheduling that are then putting them maybe on the bubble for that 500 mark. So that's going to be interesting down the stretch. And I think that just shows the strength of the SEC, like the mind-blowing emoji every time that there's a matchup um, and it doesn't quite work out the way we would predict or what we would think. And, and that is totally uh, SEC softball. And you think about the matchups that are coming up and I think, well, what are the best matchups? And then I look and I'm like, they're all good matchups. It's Arkansas Ole Miss coming up this weekend. Mississippi State, Tennessee, that's going to be a really good one. Florida, Auburn. 
both ranked Georgia, Alabama at the Rhodes House, South Carolina, Missouri. And how about Kentucky, LSU? That is always, always an incredible matchup. So SEC madness as always. So let's go back and recap a little bit what our potential pod names are. Arrived on a broom, dot the I, boom, as Schroeder says, um, but I think I think maybe jumping out front is going to be Joan Joyce's ripple effect. So far, I'm, I'm I've got that one um, on top. All right, let's talk a little bit about must see TV. Um, Jen, why don't you go ahead and start us off with that? Maybe everyone can talk about what they're looking forward to, um, what you're going to be watching live, and then may- maybe which ones you're going to come back and revisit. What are you What are you looking for, Schroeder? So for me, when I think of must-see TV, I think of the players that have swag, the it factor. You watch them and you are just like, whoa, like you kind of want to be them because they've got something that maybe you don't have. So for me, I feel like anyone on the OU roster pretty much can can be in this category. So I'm just not going to talk about any of them because I feel like I could talk about 12 to 15 of them. And then another one is Kiki Malloy, but we've given Tennessee enough love on this podcast. So there are two girls that are really standing out to me. One is KB Sides from Arkansas. I feel like her at-bats are just phenomenal. She's playing with a new level of confidence. I was texting her and she quoted, she said, I just realized that I'm the leadoff hitter for one of the best offenses in the country, and it fuels my fire. She also said she did not mean to pimp that home run that hard the other night, but she said, I was just feeling myself. And to me, that is must watch TV. She's hitting 372. She has five home runs, 18 stolen bases. And guys, her batting average increases in the SEC to 421. And they play Tennessee and LSU. That's hard to do. My second player to watch is Bailey Klingler. And if you guys have not watched her, please turn on the Washington game. She is unreal. She is having to feel the shoes of Sis Bates. And Danielle Laurie said this when she called their game. She's like, is that Bailey Klingler out there or Sis Bates? Because she is making unreal defensive plays. But those are only second to her offensive numbers. She's hitting 457. She has 45 RBIs, 14 home runs. And in conference, okay, guys, Washington is one and five. So Kayla made the point, when your team is losing, I go to look at the best player on that team. How are they doing? They have one win. She's hitting 444. Her on-base percentage increases by 100 points in Pac-12 play. So she's on base almost six of 10 times, 545 on-base percentage. So for me, those are two players that I just love watching how passionately they play the game of softball. Who wants to go next? Um, I'll go. So I, Jenny, you said like, I, I forgot how you worded it, but like you, you want to see players who can't do what you do. I, I forgot how you worded it, but I, I thought the exact same thing. I'll just put on my own words instead of just trying to summarize what you said. Like, I love watching players who run, ran way faster than what I ran and are able to have skills that I never had in my entire life. And so I actually had Katie sides written down as well. Um, and Kendra Falby. And I know that she, for Florida, um, she started off very slow in SEC play. I totally get it. But to watch her run, to watch her lay down a drag or slap or keep her feet still and hit a home run very similar to Katie's sides. I think that those type of players, like what Kayla was as well, is like, those are the players that make their sport so unique and so different to where when they come up to the plate on defense, you're tight, you're worried, your heart starts to beat a little bit faster. And as a fan, you just are like, okay, I want to watch them because I have no idea what they're about to do right now. And so I love those type of players, what they bring and they, our game is so fast and it moves so quick and they are the epitome of, I think what makes our game so special. Uh, Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, Karen Weekly always says, like, when you talk to, like, her about her players, she's like, you don't want to go to the bathroom when this girl's up to the plate. And those are the people that I think of in these moments. And I'm going to go back to Florida because the other person that is a stud for Florida is Skylar Wallace. Um, she took over game three against Tennessee. They're down 0-2. She's like, you know what? offensively we're not bringing it we've scored like two runs in two games it's not good enough I'm gonna put the team on my back let's go and she got on base all four times she stole four bases 
She scored three out of their four runs to beat Tennessee. She made a difference and she made an impact by her speed, by her grittiness, by her competitiveness. And like, that's who I want to watch as somebody that gets in the box and says, I'm not going to be denied right now. And Skylar Wallace has that look. And the other player, guys, I have to talk about her, Kayla Kowalik. I mean, how can we not talk about players to watch and Kayla Kowalik? Like, again, another speedy kid. She's a brilliant catcher, too. But what I think is really cool is that there's some players that get in the box and they decide to throw out mechanics with their backs against the wall. So if they have two strikes, they're battling with a pitcher. They're like, you know what? I don't care if I look stupid. I'm going to put this ball in play because I know that if I can put the ball in play and I can show my legs off, like if I can run, I've got a chance. And so some players say in this box where they're like, yeah, I got to be perfect mechanically. I got to do everything right. No, I want a player that's just gritty and finds a way to get the job done. And Kayla Kowalik does that for me. Well, and when it comes to Kayla Kowalik, she's always trying to get out different ways throughout a game. She doesn't want to get out twice in a game the same way but I'm going to actually throw a player out there that maybe no one in the country has their eye on that threw out Kayla Kowalik. When I called a game at Kentucky against Ohio University, I texted Jen right away and said, have you seen this kid? Because she is probably the best arm in the country. Hands down, lets the ball fly. Her transfer is so quick. She's from her knees. She's from her feet. She whips the ball around the infield like it is nothing. She has a cannon for an arm back behind the dish. Brooke Rice for Ohio University. While their team is 8-16 and this year, they're not going to get a lot of love. They're probably not going to make the postseason unless they can make a big run in conference play. But only 10 attempts to steal against her, and she's thrown out eight of them. One of them being Kayla Kowalik. And she threw her out by about three steps. It was not even close. This kid is one of the best talents in the country. And she's probably going to fly under everybody's radar because she's out of school that not a lot of people are going to see. Only time Kayla Kowalik's been thrown out this year, Jenny. Good stat. Awesome stuff, ladies. All right. So uh, that's must-see TV. And we're going to roll that into the... Uh, seven spot on the uh, upcoming weekend. Some of these uh, matchups will be obviously our matchups televised and others that maybe you're interested in. For me, I'm going to go to the Pac-12 real quick and just say some compelling um, matchups. UCLA, Oregon this weekend, uh, Washington, Arizona. Can Washington um, get out of their funk as well as Arizona? And then how about Oregon State and Cal? Those are two teams that um, have done some damage. I think that's going to be a very, very interesting weekend. I'm actually going to be calling uh, UGA at Alabama. I find this fascinating because you have Georgia who has 62 home runs that leads the SEC. They've got four players with nine home runs. Um, They're the only team in the SEC that offensively has more walks than strikeouts. Um, So that means that they're, they're working pitchers deep into counts um, and they run very well. Their pitchers uh, they've in the lower third, I would say with ERA, um, they do have 108 walks on the on the year, so they're going to try to need to try to limit that number against obviously Alabama that tries to always win the the freebie war. It's going to be at the Rhodes House, and obviously with my Montana Fouts and that strong staff in the circle and ERA right around two, uh, it's going to be a great matchup. I'm looking forward to seeing Alice Shipman, Dallas Goodnight, and all the the superstars with Montana Fouts on Alabama. So that's where I'll be at this weekend. Um, Amanda, where are you going? Yeah, that'll be awesome. I can't wait for Monday night mic'd up again. That will be fun to see. I think Murph mic'd up, right? Um, so I'm going to be, uh, well, at home, but kind of in Waco, which is only an hour from my house because I'll have Oklahoma State at Baylor. Um, and just a kind of programming update that I saw right before getting on here, we actually have two games on ESPN on Saturday night. So at 6 Eastern, we have Kentucky at LSU. And then at 8 Eastern, we'll have Oklahoma State at Baylor. So you guys, we've gone so far in this podcast and haven't talked yet about the fact that Oklahoma almost lost to Baylor. So Baylor has to be feeling really good about themselves that A, they hung with Oklahoma, and B, that they literally were one out. They, they really could have beaten them and given them their first loss. So I'm excited to watch Baylor tackle Oklahoma State, who is playing really well. Michelle, like your cowgirls are swinging it. Miranda Ellish, I feel like at the plate and in the circle is 
back to Miranda Ellish form. Like she's gotten better since the first game. So I can't wait to watch Oklahoma state and Baylor go up against each other um, and see is, is Baylor going to be able to put the heat on Oklahoma state or is Oklahoma state just having this big momentum in the big 12 right now and you got to run through them. So it'll be fun. Well, Scarborough, I was worried that you were going to uh, steal my shagging stat that's coming up in the eight spot, but you didn't. So uh, anyone else want to chime in on what they're looking forward to this weekend? Okay, I'm worried now because my shagging stat has to do with them as well. So we'll have to figure out who goes first. But when it comes to this weekend, I am at um, South Carolina and Missouri. I'm excited to see that one. But before I get there, I've got the midweek of South Carolina Clemson. So an SEC ACC matchup. And that one I'm looking forward to just because South Carolina has picked up offensively. They're hitting 308 as a team, but the concerning one for me is their ERA as a team is sitting at 4.18. So they're giving up a lot of runs while Clemson had a really rough run in their first two ACC opening weekends with Virginia Tech and Duke only able to come away with one win out of those six games. Clemson has really picked back up offensively and you can never count out Valerie Cagle. She is so good at the, in the circle. She has the highest ERA on the team, but it's because she's facing the toughest competition. And then also at the plate home runs, clutch hits. I mean, she truly is an all around player that was the ACC player of the year and the ACC freshman of the year last year. So that's where I'll be. It's another good Clemson midweek. We saw them play Georgia last week, Georgia won on walk off. So just, all around good softball in the middle of your week. Enjoy everyone. Um, something I'm keeping my eye on this week um, out of outside of the SEC is going to be um, Big Ten, Michigan at Northwestern. And here's why I'm looking at it. Um, I think this is a weekend for Michigan that if they win, it could be a turning point for their season. If they go get swept or beat two out of three against Northwestern, I think that can mean trouble for them as they head towards the postseason. And I think then at that point, it's Northwestern's conference to take over. You have uh, Danielle Williams, who's coming off a phenomenal week. She was the big 10 pitcher of the week. She had 28 strikeouts, and that's coming off of a no-hitter that she threw last week against Missouri. So she's just on fire. Um, I... I'm taking a break for the first time, I think in like eight years on a weekend, because I will be joining Michelle in Tuscaloosa, but I will not be working. I will be celebrating the 10 year anniversary of our national championship. We're having a reunion. So I will be taking Dylan and the family. We're, we're going South and we're going to see all of my former teammates and hang out and have a big celebration for the weekend. Oh my gosh. That's awesome. We're going to get you in the booth. Sorry. <laughs> I think up, Dylan, Dylan needs to go in the booth. That's, That's right. Your is first that her first time. trip to Tuscaloosa? Yes, it is. First trip, period. She's not been on a plane, so everybody wish me luck. That's going to be the biggest challenge this weekend. I hope you have the Duna. If you don't, just go rent it. Just trust me on this. All right, so I think that the Michigan-Northwestern matchup is by far the most interesting on the weekend, Kayla. I couldn't agree more. But because I'm obviously a UCLA alumni, got to talk about UCLA, Oregon, right? And the reason why this is interesting to me is because Oregon is so gritty. They have they are in every single ball game. They fight to the last out, and they've got a bunch of kids on their team who don't care who's in the other dugout. Like I feel like the fact that they're playing UCLA is more motivating than intimidating. So for me, it's a super interesting matchup because I feel like UCLA is kind of rolling right now. And when you're rolling, you can use that momentum to win and fuel you, or you can get comfortable. And UCLA teams of the past have had an issue getting a little comfortable. Mind you, Kinsley Washington's out, Aaliyah Jordan's out. So there's a lot of true freshmen in the lineup for UCLA. And when you're playing against former teammates at Oregon, right, people you grew up playing travel ball against, there's just underlying stories there that can become very interesting between the white lines. And so I think it is a very unique matchup in terms of the Oregon team that's gritty and the UCLA team that hopefully, knock on wood, does not get comfortable. All right. So that is uh, rounding up this uh, upcoming weekend and uh, some great matchups. Always looking forward to to see um, who steps up this weekend and uh, the big games and, and bro getting a weekend off. Wow. But it, I'm, I'm excited to see you this weekend and then and meet your, meet your little girl. So that, that's going to be a lot of fun. All right. Well, guess what? This is the eight spot in the lineup. So it's time to shag some stats. 
this week on Shaggin' Stats. All right, and because I'm a good teammate, I'm going to let JDH go first and just pray she doesn't steal my Shaggin' Stat. I think I might, because as soon as you said Oklahoma State, I went right to Miranda Ellis. I mean, this, I'm so sorry, Michelle, but she had such a good weekend. It's one of those things you have to talk about her, right? So Miranda Ellis, sweep over Texas Tech, was eight for eight in the series with four home runs, nine RBI, a double, five runs scored. And in the last six games, she's 11 for 14. The cool thing about it is she's also had two complete game run rule wins in the circle. But when you look at the first half of the year, she was really just trying to get her feet underneath her. She only had seven hits up to that point in the season in their first 12 games played. And then to come off of that kind of performance early on, to that performance over Texas Tech. I'm excited to see what Miranda Ellis is going to be able to do now that it looks like she's back in the groove and feeling comfy. So sorry, Michelle, but I'm pretty sure that that's who you were going to talk about too. Yep, that that was it. That means I'm going last. Go ahead, ladies. Who's going next? <laughs> I can't wait to, to watch her this weekend as she continues to get better and better. My Cheyenne stat is for Kentucky, Renee Abernathy. She hit two walk-off home runs. Oh, I think I stole Kayla's uh, against Auburn. One was like a, you know, like a real walk-off home run, like in the bottom of the seventh inning. And then one was like a, a run rule type situation where she actually hit a grand slam. Um, so very like she did it in different ways, but two walk-off home runs for Renee Abernathy. Uh, you know, what? I'm just going to piggyback off of that. Like you only gave like half of the stats. So I'm going to finish it for you. Uh, Renee Abernathy, four home runs in her last four games. She's hit a home run in each game and she drove in 11 of Kentucky's 19 runs on the weekend. So uh, have yourself a weekend, Renee Abernathy, two shagging stats this week. Wow. And her pinch hit home run against Oklahoma, because I don't think we've talked about it on this podcast, but that was insane. I'm going to give a little love to Wichita State, Sydney McKinney, because she is the nation's batting average leader at 538. But here's what's, what's most impressive to me. She only has seven walks. So she is not only leading the nation in batting average, but also hits. She has 49 hits. That's a lot. Wow. Good stuff, ladies. All right. So um, I'm going to go ahead and um, give a couple of stats on Joan Joyce. How about that? We'll, we'll, we'll just go right back to, uh, to Joni's uh, different records on the softball field. Most consecutive all-star selections, 18. Eight-time MVP of the national tournament. Um, how about this one? Most victories in a season in 1974. This was during the Connecticut Falcons, the pro league that was um, back in the 70s, supported by uh, Billie Jean King and Martina Navratilova and a bunch of other professional female athletes supporting other female athletes. Most victories in that season at 42. And that, again, was in 1974. Um, we could go on and on. The, the stats are staggering. Look up Joan Joyce. Um, there's many, many more that you can, uh, can find that will blow your mind. That was Shaggin' Stats. Number nine in the final slot. We got Amanda Scarborough coming up with the uh, the mailbag. What did you fish out of there, Amanda? I Well, I also saw that Joan Joyce scored 67 points in a basketball game. So I, I don't think we could go this entire podcast without mentioning that she was also on the USA national team and scored 67 points in one game. Okay, so let's go kind of quickly with this one since we're running a little bit long. But Lissy2113. Aside from what Beth calls us, did anyone have any good nicknames growing up um, playing sports? So um, did any of you guys have good nicknames? So I played with Allison Habits on the Colorado Silver Bullets, which was a professional baseball team. And Allison Habits called me Jenny B. Dalton. Like the bookstore, it's an old school bookstore, but that's that was my nickname. And I think all of us went by last name. That's just a sports thing. Everybody calls you your last name when you play sports. Yeah, bro. I mean, what else are you going to call somebody with my last name? I mean, that's just a given. My family called me KB, but that's only because you can't call a person bro who everybody else in your family's last name is the same. So, you know, it's bro or KB. That's it. Everyone just calls me J Shro. I think it's the same. But side note, I dressed up as a silver bullet for Halloween like three years in a row, Jenny. So I just need to say that. That's awesome. That's awesome. All Uh, I wanted to be was a silver bullet. 
<laughs> I love it. Uh, in high school, I was Mickey when that song came out. Oh, Mickey, you're so fine. You're so fine. Okay. Um, so anyway, I won't sing any more than that. So we won't hurt your ears. Um, and <laughs> national team with Ralph Raymond, it was, um, he would call me uh, lefty or silky because he said I had a silky swing from the left side. So Okay, I think we need to use Silky more often instead of Smitty. Uh, my nickname was Bullet growing up, so that's like three times that we've said the word bullets in the past like two minutes, which I find is kind of interesting, and also Lou. I don't know, just throwing mine in there. Okay, uh, last question, Prime Shy G, S-H-A-I-G. Uh, just curious, who is the second favorite in the Pac-12 behind UCLA? I feel like I have to go with Arizona state right now as it stands because they're streaking. I mean, those runs, they put up 51 runs scored in the last six games. They're six and oh currently. So I think if I'm, if I'm voting right now, I'm saying ASU is the team to beat. And I am anticipating a UCLA ASU series down the road. Yeah. I'll, I'll piggyback on that, Jen. I think that's exactly. And the thing is they have to stay hot. We see so many times teams get hot, but then, somebody finds their Achilles heel and it gives them a little bit of a stumble. So as long as they stay hot, I think they stay number two. And they, sorry, one more thing about ASU. It's interesting because they went from getting beat by Fresno state to going six and zero in the pack. So I'm saying right now, because I don't want them to have another Florida state game. And then people are like, Jenny and Jen, they're just the pac 12 homers over there. They don't know what they're talking about. Right. Okay. No, but I have to give some love. They have a freshman on their squad. She's a red shirt freshman, but Christiana, uh, Laura Espinosa Watson. So Christiana Watson is Laura Espinosa's daughter and had a huge home run earlier in the year. So that team has some pretty good genes to be able to go deep. Okay, that's this week's mailbag. Um, hopefully we'll do it again sometime. And ASU plays Oregon next weekend. Looking forward to that one. Just kind of prefacing it. That'll be a good series. All right, Amanda, thanks for the mailbag and great show this week. I think uh, we had a lot of really good information shared, obviously honoring legendary Joan Joyce um, at seven innings podcasts on the road to the women's college world series. We will be back next week as a TV show. Look at your listings. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, And I don't know, are we going to be in polos? Are we going to be business casual? Well, well you have to tune in to find out. So at seven innings podcasts on the road to the women's college world series. (laughs) 